0: Welcome back to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss, Director of Special Investigations at the Free Russia Foundation. Uh, this week, we are joined by Evgenia Albatz, who is a legendary Russian writer and journalist and author. I moderated a panel with her last week, and I was so taken with what she had to say. I figured we, we'd extend. The conversation a bit longer uh, evgenia is the editor-in-chief of the political website the new times which is based in moscow she is also the talk show host of absolute albats on echo Moskvi, uh, the radio station and she is author of a classic book kgb state within a state which is a sort of must read for understanding the nature of the soviet and russian security apparatuses up until the book's publication date which i believe was 1999. evgenia thanks for coming on the program Uh, Before we delve into the the reason I wanted to bring you on, which is this transformation revolution of uh, the KGB and now FSB, SVR, GRU over time, and specifically under the Putin regime, I wanted to ask you about something that just happened yesterday, which is, in effect, the cancellation of Alexei Navalny by Amnesty International. They have delisted him as a prisoner of conscience. And according to one of their own spokespersons, they did so because they were bombarded by essentially a a pressure campaign, which they themselves acknowledge seem to have been led and coordinated by RT aligned actors. So in other words, accomplices of the Russian state propaganda network We're putting pressure on a venerable Western human rights organization to say, Alexei Navalny is no prisoner of conscience. And they were doing this by citing past comments he's made characterized as xenophobic and racist, and also claiming that he has never repudiated calls to violence. Now I know that you have known Navalny for a long, long time when he was a very young political activist in Russia. Tell us about who Alexei Navalny is, what are the merits, if any, to these allegations and how he has uh, transformed himself. I mean, everybody in their youth says and does things that they um, they regret later on. Uh, who is he today versus what this caricature or portrait that's being painted of him by Amnesty and the people who forced them into this decision, how, did, how does that hold up?
1: Michael, thank you very much for inviting me to your show. And uh, you know, I'm absolutely happy to answer your questions. It's true, I know Navalny for quite a while. And I, in fact, you know, I know him since 2004 at the time, He worked as deputy chief of staff of the Russian First Democratic Party, Yablok. However, it was, you know, one of those very murky years when Putin's first term was coming to an end and became clear that all these expectations on parts of Russian liberals, that Putin was going to be this, you know, enlightened dictator who was going to give boost to reforms, and at the same time, he will preserve whatever democratic institutions exist in Russia. All that, you know, by 2004 became, you know, clear to everyone that Putin was not going to do either, but he was going to enrich his friends and his pals from the KGB, who slowly but surely took over all the major institutions, economic institutions and political institutions in different realms of Russian life. At that time, you know, it was, as I said, it was pretty murky and therefore political parties really didn't exist. There was a liberal democratic party which dissolved itself later. Yabloka became sort of a puppet of the administration of the president. Communists turned into something opposite. They turned into Russian Orthodox activists with Stalinist stances. It was, you know, one of those very well-known situations in countries in transition when Russia got totally unstructured political field. There were no really political parties which were capable to channel aspirations and interest and grievances of Russian people. As it often happens in this kind of society, nationalistic stances got an upper hand. As we're well aware, in this politically unstructured societies, people tend to unite on basis of their ethnicity or religion views or birth. It's very difficult conception for the United States because the United States is an imperialistic power. And in fact, you know, people who were running from these nation states of Europe founded the United States. However, there is nothing new of that for Europe. In fact, you know, you, you have, in the United States, you played with American nationals all the entire last four years of Trump administration. Make America great again. It's the same as make Russia great again, and that's the slogan of the Russian nationalists. So at that time, Russian nationalists were very expanded movement. It accumulated a lot of young Russians who, especially from the poor and humble backgrounds, who were looking for some idea because old ideas were down, you know, the toilet. They no longer existed. All of a sudden turned out that Soviet Union no longer existed. And all those ideas that drove many generations of Russian people, they just disappeared. And so the ideas that were popular... In the early 20th century, the ideas of Russian nationalism, Russian greatness, they were put on the banners. At that time, you know, there were people on the ground who were promoting these ideas of Russian nationalism. And at the same time, there were people at the top of the Russian administration who were playing with this as well. As somebody who spent quite some time in studying the transformation of the Weimar Republic into the Third Reich. I was well aware that nationalism, which is put on the state banners, turns into fascism. And that's what's really, really dangerous. And I believe that it was really important to prevent Russian state from grabbing and capitalizing on these ideas. Alexei Navalny grew up in the military compounds as his father was military officer And so they were, as it often happened with the military families in the Soviet Union, you know, they were drafted from one military compound to another. And finally, they settled somewhere near by Moscow, in the close city nearby Moscow. So he saw all this grievousness of the Soviet army officers who all of a sudden found themselves outside everything, you know in the new Russia and without any real salaries and any real support from the side of uh, the Yaksin's administration. In a way, his nationals was pretty much built out of his humble upbringing and his knowledge of grievances of people of his age and his generation in Moscow and other cities across the country.
0: When he first started getting involved in politics, and I remember this from 10 years ago, he was criticized by other actors within the Russian opposition, such as it was, for attending the the Russian marches, which were very, one might say, ultra-nationalistic, a lot of skinheads, a lot of neo-Nazis. But I also remember him commenting in real time then, and correct me if I'm wrong, look, this is one of the only vehicles allowed for opposing the Putin regime right now. This was before Bolotna. This was before the kind of great upsurge in Russian civil society that we've seen in the last 10 years, the largest protest since the end of the Soviet Union. And his point, uh, as he related to interviewers uh, who, who asked him about this was, I'm trying to reach these people and get them to redirect their efforts Away from thinking everything is a Zionist conspiracy or, you know, railing about the Jews to understanding the corruption built into the system, which has given rise to these, you know, sort of, as you point out, nationalism as a byproduct of failed empire and an endemic collapse of political economy. Um, Maybe that's too optimistic or um, a rose tinted of a view of his past. I mean, he has said things that are quite xenophobic and racist with respect to Chechens, I believe, and those from, you know, stop feeding the coffers was one of his slogans when he first became a kind of YouTube campaigner. But he hasn't said anything like that in a long time. And I'm just wondering, you know him well, and you've had extensive conversations with him. How in the West would you best explain who Navalny is right now? I mean, this is not, you know, he's been described as uh, according to some of these sort of, you know, not just pro-Kremlin types, but uh, left-wing anti-imperialist types in America as well. He's somewhere between Geet Wilders and Viktor Orban, you know, if you think Putin is a nasty figure, you should see Navalny and what he would do if he ever came to power. And I, I don't put much stock in this, having studied Navalny's work closely, especially in the last five years. What is your overview of who he is today?
1: Obviously, you know, people who put him somewhere in between with uh, Netherlands, nationalist, uh, a national from Netherlands and who else, you know, from, they know very little about Russia and much less about uh, Navalny himself. As I said, back in 2006, 2007, a Russian populist movement, Russian national movement, was the strongest in the then big cities. And Navalny approach was the following. We live among these people. We're not going to send them to Mars. We're not going to send them to Moon. We have to find ways and means to talk to them. And that's exactly what he did. He went to these Russian marches, and I went. Being an observant Jew, I went to the Russian marches, and I spoke with these Russian nationalists. And I was telling that in the interest of Kremlin to divide us. But, you know, he went to these Russian marches precisely because he was looking for ways and means to talk to these young people, to try to explain to them. And that's exactly what he did. And I was there, unlike, you know, those who in the United States know much better what Navalny said or did. He was telling these people that they should understand that their enemies are not these people with with non-Slavic last names or hairs or noses or whatever, that we have common problem. And that's common problem has a name, corruption of the ruling elite, who is basically like vampires taking resources of the Russian land, its natural resources, not to the common good, but to their own profits and their own wealth. That's what he, the kind of message he was trying to get through. Yes, it's true that a couple of times there was, you know, one video that Navalny put out during some election campaign for the Moscow uh, legislature when he was still allowed to run. And yes, he used adjectives which were profoundly bad, and they were related to the ethnicity of Georgian people, that's the former Republic of the Soviet Union, and, you know, to some people from the Caucasus. You also have to keep in mind that Russia just got out of two bloody wars in Chechnya, that Russian journalists were, you know, many of them were there, were kidnapped. In Chechnya, they were raped there. They went through awful things in Chechnya. And therefore, many Russians felt very uneasy when it turned out that Russian government was providing Chechnya with billions of windfall profits, which came out of high oil prices. Whereas, you know, many regions, the Slavic regions of the Russian Federation, were as poor as they always were. So it's not that simple. And, you know, this desire of simplification on part of some of Western journalists makes me really crazy, especially when they do this sitting in the safe environments of the United States or Europe and they write all these bullshit. So some of Navalny's wording was totally improper. He used so-called street Russian. That's the kind of adjectives and nouns that... Russians often use, uh, you know, in their street talks, and he brought the strict language into his videos. However, in 2013, when he was running for the position of the mayor of Moscow, he questioned about that by Novaya Gazeta, one of the no longer independent, but anyway, democratic newspapers in Moscow. And back then, he said, and I am translating directly from his interview, his quote, he said, many times I was asked about that, that I called Georgians, uh, I have no um, idea what's in English. Anyway, you don't use the words like that. In my blog post uh, related to the war, he means the war between uh, Russia and Georgia in 2008. And I regret that. It was bad, it was wrong language, Unfortunately, it you know it went against the idea I was trying to outline. I regret about using those words. So that happened in 2013. So Amnesty International, of course, you know they probably have had time uh, reading in Russian. But I hope people from Russia today, RT, you know this propaganda outlet run by the Russian government, may help others. To find... If I may
0: interrupt, it was interesting because what Amnesty acknowledged, I mean, almost I give them credit for being honest about this. They said we had examined Navalny's prior comments, such as presumably the one you just read or you alluded to, and we didn't find any of it relevant to his current status as a prisoner of the Putin government, and his, his current status also as a political actor. One of the um the criteria for remaining a prisoner of conscience or being listed in the first place, one has to have repudiated these former xenophobic or racist views. And you've just now read a quote in which Navalny did exactly that. He said, I was wrong. I apologize. I shouldn't have done it. I won't do it again. I mean, look, this is a big question because in the West, as you pointed out, There is a fundamental failure of imagination of life in Russian society, understanding Russian culture. I mean, it is a given that, you know, a quote unquote liberal in the Russian context is not necessarily a liberal in the Upper West Side of Manhattan context. Yeah. And people will resort to these sort of this street lingo and make untoward or what we would call politically incorrect or cancelable comments. It doesn't mean, though, that Navalny, is a fascist waiting to take power and commit genocide or invade his neighbors and so on and so forth. There seems to be this act of almost counterfactual history before the history has taken place. Let's judge Navalny by what he might do extrapolating from what he said or how he might have behaved 10-15 years ago before he became a mature politician. And it seems to me his entire raison d'être apart from he wants to fundamentally change the society he lives in and the the nature of the government is he's an anti-corruption campaigner. As you said earlier, this is for him the his core passion. This is what he crusades against, you know, thieving, banditry, The robbing of the Russian people for the self-enrichment of a new nomenklatura of oligarchs and Siloviki and people inhabiting the presidential administration. Is that a fair sort of pricey of who he is today?
1: Yes, but also, you know, once again, no, I think that, you know, unfortunately, some people are just lazy and some people are just used by the Russian security forces to their own ends. We do know that RT is very much involved in different active measures operations, which were known since the Cold War. I would remind you listeners that one of these active measures operations was a lie that HIV was developed by Pentagon and specially planted in Africa in order to kill Africans. And that was one, just one, there, were there was another one that, you know, that Americans, you know, steal babies from uh, different countries, including, you know, Africa and Asia and Latin America and, you know, for organ transplant, and all this kind of stuff. So these, what we, unfortunately, I hate to say that, given uh, who were the sources of Amnesty International, and given that allegedly they used some totally fake Black ports. for instance, I was told, you know, it's still under investigation, and I didn't finish, you know, my investigation, that that Amnesty was fed with a fake post that they said that it was written by Navalny, which was against Jews. Once again, he's a very close friend of mine. I run a kosher household, and he was coming to this kosher household each Tuesday. The only complaint that these kids had was that, you know, unfortunately, all I could give them to eat was chicken without any mayonnaise. So I'm just saying this, that I'm very much afraid that Amnesty International became a victim of active measures operation. And it was used to put a dot on Navalny. Also, we should say that Amnesty Moscow had no clue about that. They learned about the decision of the Amnesty International UK, the lead office, only from the media. And Amnesty Moscow was, uh, according to the interview of the head of the office uh, to Ech Moskwi, she was surprised and she didn't share into those views of the Amnesty International UK, but apparently Amnesty International UK, of course, knows better.
0: They said that they had looked into these complaints before, but they acknowledged that so many people had been essentially bullying them into... Making a decision. So, in other words, this was crowdsourced again by a, a group of people that are RT aligned. Or, I mean, Margarita Simignon, the editor in chief of RT, basically claimed credit. One of my columnists, she said, or one of our columnists, meaning RTs, led the campaign. And this is a, a woman, Katia. Kazbek, Katya Kazbek. Kazbek, right, which isn't her real name. Um, So she uses a pseudonym. I've seen evidence, an editor at at RFERL, the Russian news site, not the English language news site, claimed that uh, Katya Kazbek had written articles for RFERL and then had emailed them saying, I want you to remove all of them from your website. So either this person had had an ideological reinvention of self and decided she no longer wanted to be affiliated with a congressionally funded... American news operation, and also now writes for far left websites and also writes and contributes to RT, or something else is going on here. But it's certainly, I would agree with you that this does look like a classic active measure, but one that has been very successful in cowing an NGO, a Western NGO that, you know, is meant to stand up for dissidents. And, And let us not forget, Navalny was, they tried to murder him at least twice, possibly three times with a weapon of mass destruction. He is a hostage of the Putin regime. So to capitulate like this is almost an invitation for that regime to say, let's try something new against him. Let's see what else we can do to victimize this guy.
1: Exactly. You know, this smear campaign against Navalny, you know, that he's a fascist Nazi god, you know, you know, it was in this way, another outlined in Jacobin magazine, in the National Interest magazine around by Dmitry Simes, who lives in Moscow and who is very close to Kremlin. Even in the clubhouse, you know, in this new social network, I once, you know, entered the room and there was uh, the former Putin's chief of staff who was telling young people that Navalny wanted to strip of their assets Jewish oligarchs. And thanks God, I was there. And I immediately I said, you know, wait a second, what are you talking about? It's a lie. And of course, you know, he immediately retracted. But that told me that uh, KGB successes have been developing these operations for quite a while, both domestically and internationally. Your listeners may also want to know that the timing was, it's not an accident that they put out all these lies now, because exactly this week, European Union is discussing right now, Minister for Foreign Affairs of the European Union, it's a 27-nation strong body, discussing sanctions against Kremlin and top Kremlin officials with respect to poisoning of Alexei Navalny. The same is happening in the United States, but the White House and the State Department is also discussing the measures precisely, you know, with respect to FSB poisoning, alleged poisoning of Alexei Navalny. Your listeners may not know that, in fact, Trump administration prepared those measures and they were supposed to be released in January 2021, but they never were released. You know, Trump decided not to go for that. Whatever reason, it's up to you, American journalists, to find out. And that's exactly what they're trying to do. They're trying to tell American public and European public, look, you are trying to defend Russian fascists, Russian Nazi, you know, bad guy. Now you're going to introduce sanctions against Russia. It's also the question of Nord Stream 2, as already 16 different companies who were part of this conglomerate, you know, denounced it deals with Nord Stream 2 out of the fear of the American sanctions. So, of course, you know, Nord Stream 2 is an extremely important deal for Putin and his closest entourage, as it is the kind of tool that will allow to put Ukraine down. So, to cut the long story short, it's very difficult with everything we know about um, people who are running Russia now. And that's, as I said, first and you know, about 87% of all officers in the Russian Federation are taken by the graduates of the KGB or SVR or GRU or that's GRU, it's military intelligence. You know, Michael, that's better than I do. So knowing who is running Russia, what kind of operations they did before, what kind of active measures they used during the Cold War. It's hard not to see that this smear campaign, Alexei Navalny, is orchestrated out of one command center, and it uses different people like Katya Kosbek, who is a known Stalinist lover, and also, you know, she wrote posts in which she acknowledged her aspirations for Bashir Assad, the Syrian butcher.
0: But she's also a quite wealthy Stalinist. She is the daughter of an electronics, a former electronics magnate in Russia, who I think sold his company for between 60 and $100 million. And then I think it was in the 90s. So and, and lives in New York quite comfortably. So you really can't make this up, can you? A multimillionaire Stalinist in Manhattan is leading a campaign against a guy sitting in a Russian jail cell in one of the most notorious prisons in Moscow, I don't have to tell you where Sergei Magnitsky was tortured to death, and essentially painting a target on his back as if there weren't already a thousand targets on his back, and he weren't already a hostage or captive of state. And yet, this has succeeded again. The remarkable thing, and, and you know, I've heard this from. Time immemorial, don't pay so much attention to RT and Sputnik and don't worry about all these trolls that the Evgeny Prigozhin and the Internet Research Agency are putting out. All of their methods are so crude. They're so transparent. They fail. They don't succeed. Well, here's a case, a rather open and shut case, I would add, of success, where even amnesty is acknowledging that this was a, a almost a Russian troll coordinated pressure campaign and they simply cave to it. It is quite extraordinary. I mean, the one thing that, that gives me a little bit of hope, uh, and I don't have much these days, is you are seeing on Russian Twitter, you are seeing among Russian independent journalists and civil society actors and the opposition, which is, you know, probably better than most, can hardly agree on anything on most issues. There is a solidarity with Navalny, even those who don't like his politics or are wary of him for whatever reason. You know, this is a five alarm fire. If we can't get our act together and rally around this guy and what he represents and what he stands against, then we might as well just give up and submit to Putin forever. So it is, it's rather striking that in the West, people who live without fear of persecution or arrest or murder, again, with a military grade nerve agent, have, have so blithely condemned this guy. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what the result of this amnesty thing is, but I have seen what Russian state media is doing with inevitably, predictably dining out and saying, this is victory. We told you so.
1: Exactly. They celebrated as a huge victory. And Margarita Simonyan, the head of RT, she was basically, you know, Putin saying, now we, we did it. We did it. And they did it. Thank you very, very much, Amnesty International. They did it. But also, you know, talking about Navalny views, I realized that I didn't say about that. In his latest interviews, Navalny acknowledged that he is adherent of the parliamentary democracy, parliamentary republic, as, you know, presidential system in the Russian context leads to what Aristotle predicted back in his book of, in his politics, where he said that even a noble man You know, turns into a dictate. So he's adherent of the parliamentary republic and ninety ninety percent of all. States in Europe are parliamentary republics, uh, with exception for Turkey. He's a strong adherent of the rule of law. He himself, you know, got education in judiciary. He was attorney before, you know, he was deprived from that job. He was part of the Moscow Chamber of Lawyers. He went through the bar and etc. Et he believes in a strong civil society, in the rule of law, in independent judiciary, and in the executive, which is under control from the side of the legislature and independent judiciary. So his views are the views of you would probably consider him to be some sort of a liberal Democrat to liberal Democrat.
0: Yeah, I would add to this two other points, which ironically come as a result of the Russian state's campaign to Silence him, whether through legal persecution or murder. Number one, the European Court of Human Rights basically ruled that the first indictment and then conviction on these trumped-up um, corruption charges—you know—they accuse their enemies of doing that which they themselves do. It's a kind of Freudian projection of a system. Was completely politicized. So here's somebody who is now going to absolutely stand behind European democratic institutions and those that uphold human rights because they've helped save him or they've given him legitimacy. Twice. Twice. And number two, and this is something I think you, above all, will appreciate, I cannot think of a Russian politician who, should he ever be elected whatever, president, prime minister, even mayor of of Moscow, will come to office with more of a burning hatred and antipathy for the Czechist system that has endured from 1917 until now in its various permutations and reinventions. Can you think of somebody who hates, and I'm going to use the word KGB as a kind of grab-all term because it's more evocative, but can you think of any Russian with political aspirations who hates the KGB more than Alexei Navalny, who got one of his own assassins from the FSB to admit to the crime on the telephone in a prank call. You know, not even Trotsky had this kind of, uh, you know, contempt for the the surveillance state.
1: But, you know, I'm sorry, Michael, let me tell you that, that uh, Navalny is a person of faith. He is a devoted Russian Orthodox. And he believes in forgiveness. In in that respect, he's, I think that, you know, in his speech at the court, he was talking about that, that, you know, it's very important for us to take stance, but also to know how to forgive. Just remark.
0: So in other words, this is somebody who will kind of, he will offer a reprieve to those who served Putin as long as they have seen the light and...
1: No. No, I have no doubt that Navalny will be uh, pushing for illustration.
0: Yeah, I was just going to say.
1: For putting in jail and, you know, for investigating those who conducted, uh, you know, who were involved in crimes and corruption and sort that goes without doubt. But it's just important to say that he is not the one who is going to punish somebody because of he himself. That's what I'm trying to say. He does know, and he said this in one of his uh, documentaries, he does know who tried to kill him. Right. And he knows these people, and he spoke to one of them. However, he's the kind of a guy who's not going to punish them just because they went against him. For him, it's more important that these people destroy the fabric of the Russian society, that these people destroy the state, that these people deprive 25 million Russians lived along the poverty line. And at the same time, Putin has been building a palace in the Russian South worth $100 billion. No one billionaire in the United States would ever allow to do anything even close to what Putin did. So that's what also important about him you know, he's not the guy who's going to punish somebody because he suffered. He understands that that's part of the job of a politician, and especially of a politician in a country like Russia, with a country which is run by the KGB guys.
0: Well, Yevgeny, I mean, I wanted to get into the, uh, speaking of the KGB guys, how this system, the security apparatuses in Russia have have changed over time. But I, I am cognizant of the fact that I think you have to go because you're doing your own investigation into this amnesty thing. Yes. And so we've talked at length about Navalny, but it's been a pleasure. I you know, I, I was really keen to have your insights. After reading the Masha Gessen piece, which I thought was quite good and comprehensive about Navalny's political evolution over time, which quoted you um, pretty extensively. So thank you so much for coming on the program. And perhaps next time we can have you back to talk about the KGB and uh, its discontents.
1: Let's do it when I will be in Moscow, you know, it will be fair to do it from Moscow.
0: For sure. I'm Michael Weiss. You've been listening to Foreign Office. And my guest this week was Evgeny Albats. Thanks very much.